The devil likes to attack our incompetence, our incompetence. You don't have what it takes to make a difference in your school or in your workplace, in your family, in your university, or even in your home. You are right. You don't have what it takes. But through a powerful God, you can make a difference. On March 2nd, 1962. Anybody remember 1962? All right, some people raise their hand who are uh, not that old. Some of you. On March 2nd, 1962, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, history was made as the Philadelphia Warriors battled against the New York Knickerbockers. Now, the Philadelphia Warriors today are called the Golden State Warriors, and later on, actually this year, they would move to San Francisco. But on this night, March 2nd, 1962, Wilt Chamberlain would go on to do something that has currently never been done before to this day, not even close. Wilt managed to score an amazing, how many of you know, 100 points in that game, beating the Knicks. This might even be more amazing, but the score, 169 to 147. Now, for those of you that don't play basketball, those are just numbers to you. They don't mean much. So I try to give you, some, uh, try to give you an idea of how amazing this feat is. The average points scored in an NBA game today, or, or back, I should say back in 2018, was 112 points. That's the average score that a team will, the entire team will make in a full game. It's 112 points. That would mean Wilt scored almost as many points as an average entire team would score. He did it all by himself. The only person that has ever even come close to that, at least up to this point, was, anybody know who's second place? Kobe Bryant. Back in 2006, against the Raptors, sorry, Canada, against the Raptors, he scored how many? We've got some, we got, some, uh, got some knowledgeable people in here. He scored 81 points in 2006. That's the second closest. That's a 19-point difference. That's a lot in basketball. Now, one might look at this amazing record and say that Wilt Chamberlain could have won the game all by himself. He didn't need a team. He was the team. But if you were to interview Wilt himself, which many did, he would say otherwise and did say otherwise. Even though he did something truly amazing in the eyes of sport, something that may never become a beat again, he could not have done it without the help of his teammates. I mentioned to you what the score was, 169 to 147. Wilt scored 100 of those points by himself, still would have fell short of beating the Knicks. I guess what they need is maybe some defense. But one of Wilt's teammates, Guy Rogers, on that day had a total of 20 assists, which means 20 times he successfully passed the ball to somebody to allow them to score. 20 times, and if uh, on average each point is worth about two points, or each score is worth about two points, he himself helped to get around 40 points. Guy also had seven rebounds, and he had 11 points himself for that game. 
So despite the best effort from one guy, he still couldn't do it all by himself. He needed his teammates to play defense. He needed his teammates to, to get him open, to pass the ball. He couldn't do it by himself. There's even sports today that are sort of, we would call them one-man shows. Sports involving uh, golf, for instance. We would say golf is a one-man sport. Or maybe uh, like tennis. Or you could even maybe say running. One-man sports. But if you were to ask each of those people, how did you do it? If they were honest, they would say, oh, I wouldn't be here today without my coach, without my other friends, without my dad, without my mom pushing me. I couldn't have been here today without coaches along the way. You see, nothing really is ever a one-man show. If we're honest, there's always a group of people. Sometimes they're behind the scenes, but they're there to make sure that that one person can get to where he needs to be. Coaches, trainers, teachers, they're all equally as vital as the athlete himself. Here at Grace Baptist Church, there's not one man doing everything, one person. There's not one person making all the shots, collecting all the rebounds, making all the assists to himself, so to speak. This church only exists because of teamwork. I don't know about you, but the, uh, the older we get as well, uh, we played basketball uh, last Sunday night after church, and uh, when, you get, when, you, when you're not as in the shape as you used to be and you start getting tired and winded, you're really grateful for your teammates. You get the ball, and to hide how, how out of shape you are, I'll just pass the ball. Yeah, I'm just being humble. I could score right now, but I'm just going to pass the ball, let someone else have a chance. So grateful for teammates. John C. Maxwell, he said this, Teamwork makes the dream work, but a vision becomes a nightmare when the leader has a big dream and a bad team. Did you get that? We've all heard the phrase, you know, the, uh, teamwork makes a dream work. But sometimes when a leader has a big dream, it's going to be a nightmare if he doesn't have the right team to accomplish his goal. Nehemiah had a vision to see the walls of Jerusalem repaired, but this was no easy task. Nehemiah could never see this dream work without teamwork. We know, as we just read already, that Nehemiah did help get the wall built, and he did so in a record time in 52 days. But how did it get to that point? How did it work? If you could... Turn with me, first of all, to uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. And I'd like us to first of all see the dream of Nehemiah. The dream of Nehemiah. For a project to be accomplished, there needs to be a dream to start it first. And Nehemiah was given such a dream. In Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll start reading, I'll, I'll just read in verse 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad? Word verse 2. Seeing thou art not sick. This is 
nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid and said unto the king, let not, excuse me, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste? And the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. And moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hands of my God upon me. Now, we don't really have time to really dig into just how incredible this scene was we just had here. But we see unfolding here is the dream of Nehemiah. When somebody was before the king at this time, they weren't allowed to really have emotions or show anything. They weren't allowed to use their position for their own gain. And Nehemiah wasn't intending to do so, but he was trying his best to hide, his, hide the sorrow in his heart. He had heard in the chapter prior that his beloved Jerusalem was laid waste. Ezra had just uh, tried, they just accomplished rebuilding the temple, but people were going in and ransacking the temple because there was no wall to protect it. And this broke Nehemiah's heart. And according to chapter 2, Nehemiah never showed emotion to the king before. So the king looked at him and said, hey, Nehemiah, what's wrong? I'm guessing he was normally a pretty cheery, cheery guy. Nehemiah, there's something off about you. What is it? Nehemiah explained what went on. And we, all the way down to verse 8, we see not only does the king allow Nehemiah to leave for several months, but he also gives him all the equipment needed to accomplish this goal. That right there is a, is a miracle in itself. But in verse 8, we see the dream of Nehemiah. We see it was, first of all, to build and repair the gates of the city. And the gates of the city, this was a, a, a big task. There was many towers that, that surrounded and walls in between each tower, and there were things broken down and a lot that needed to get fixed. He wanted to build and repair the city, but we see also in verse 8, he wanted to uh, not just repair this, the, gate, the city gates, but also to repair the wall surrounding Jerusalem. And we also see in verse 8 that he wanted to build himself a house to stay in while he was there. It says, uh, as for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. So he had three big things he wanted to do. Repair the gates, repair the walls around the gates, and to build himself a home. And the king said in the end of verse 8, where it says, And the king granted me according to the good hand. He gave him everything he needed 
to get the job done. So the dream of Nehemiah was a big dream. And this is where all big, this is where all big projects start is with a vision, with a dream. But I don't want us just to see the dream of Nehemiah. We, we already know what that is. We, we've read the stories before. Let's look at, secondly here, the scheme against Nehemiah. With every dream, you can guarantee there's a scheme. With every dream from God, you can guarantee there's a scheme from the devil that is just around the corner to stop your dream from happening. And when I say your dream, I mean God's dream given to you. God has given you something and you know this is what God's will is for your life. You can guarantee the devil is going to do what he can to stop that dream from happening. And the devil starts in chapter 4 with a personal threat of incompetence. A personal threat of incompetence. Look what the devil throws at Nehemiah now in chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 1, the opposition begins. It says in verse number 1 of chapter 4, But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was happy. Is that what it says? He was joyful? No, what is the word? He was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was, was by him. And he said, Even that which they build. If a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Right now what they're doing is they're... There's a personal threat of their incompetence. These people don't have what it takes. If a fox walks across the wall after they build it, it's just going to fall over. They don't have what it takes to build this wall. And they begin to mock and to ridicule. You could count on a personal threat from the devil if you start to do something great for God. Just count on it. If you're, starting, if you're wanting to do something great for God, you can count on a personal threat from the devil. You can count on a personal threat from the devil if you make a big decision for God. At the end of a service, you come forward and you make a decision for God. Lord, I'm going to get rid of this out of my life. Or, Lord, I'm going to improve in this area. I'm going to do this better and do this more. You can guarantee the devil and his minions up there are writing that down saying, Oh, really? You think you're going to do that, do you? <laughs> well, I know your weakness. I know if I throw a small little fox in your way, that decision is going to come crumbling down. You can count on the devil threatening your competence of your decision. Saying things like, uh, you sure about that? You sure that's what God wants you to do? Do you know how dumb you'll look in front of others if you do that? You won't last a day. So why even try? You say you want to maybe give more to missions, more money to missions, but you don't even have any money. So you're crazy. You want to surrender your life to God? You don't have what it takes, which is true. No one does, which is why we rely on God for the answer. But you're too shy. You're too, you're too dumb. You're too sinful. You're too ignorant. You're too old. You're too young. You're not talented enough. The devil likes to attack our incompetence, our incompetence. You don't have what it takes to make a difference in your school. 
or in your workplace, in your family, in your university, or even in your home. You are right. You don't have what it takes. But through a powerful God, you can make a difference. The devil does what he can to attack you on a, on a competence level. You don't have what it takes. You can't accomplish this goal. So don't even try. Nehemiah's competence was being threatened, but that didn't stop Nehemiah from continuing the work that he knew God had for him. So we see a personal threat of incompetence, but now the devil's not done. He tried to uh, attack Nehemiah on a competence level. It didn't work. So now he's trying a physical threat of war. He goes right to war. We're still in chapter 4. Look now in verse 7. Look in verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, they were very happy. What is that word? They were very wroth. And conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Here it is again. Now look down in verse 11. And our adversaries said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. Well, this is exciting news. Nehemiah, if you continue this work, we're going to kill you. We're going to raise up an army. We're physically going to go in when you're not expecting it, and we're going to kill you. Once you start trying to serve God, you can guarantee the devil will threaten you with war. With war. He will tell you how hard your life will be if you make this decision for God. You can't make that decision for God. Your life's going to be miserable. You're going to hate it. Don't do this decision. He will tell you it's not worth the sacrifice. It's not worth the risk. It's not worth the lifestyle if you do that for God. If you start walking with God more, the devil will do his best to scare you away from following him. Because the devil is scared of a person that makes a decision to follow Christ. Once he sees you starting to live your life for God, the devil gets scared. He, does, he knows the power of a person that has the power of God. Because really the power of a person isn't much, but he knows when a person allows God to work and live through him, he knows. He's seen people in the past that have willingly let God just work in their life, and he's seen the damage that they've done to the devil's cause. And you can guarantee he's going to slip anything into your mind to get you to stop. How many times have we started something and we didn't finish it? <laughs> We've all done it before, whether it's uh, exercise or a diet or whether it's some kind of a project or job. Even now, you may be thinking about a project that you started and you know you're supposed to finish. Back in 2019, we, our family went to Texas. This is the last time we did like a big trip. And uh, we saw my family and we spent a couple weeks down there. And, and I purposely, we bought a new lens for that day. And I took a whole bunch of videos and stuff and I was yeah, I'm going to make a cool highlight video of our, our trip in Texas. It's going to be awesome. And uh, fast forward to, um, what's today? <laughs> June, June something, 2022. I, I did start it. Like, I have a lot of the videos on the timeline. I've done some editing, and I've got some music picked out and stuff. But uh, I haven't finished it yet. 
It's been a couple, couple of days or years since I finished it. We've all had some projects and things in life that we've started, we haven't finished. But when it comes to God, that's where the devil puts his foot down and says, I need to stop this. I need to stop. He will do whatever he can to stop you, but remember, he can only do to you what God allows. The devil has no power over you. He can only afflict things in your life that God allows to happen. Have you read the book of Job? The devil walking around saying, God, look at that guy Job, man. If you would just remove that hedge of protection, if you would let me at him, he would deny you immediately. The devil has no power over us. He can whisper things to us, he can scare us, but he can't do anything. And by the way, God's not going to allow things to happen in your life that he knows you can't handle. He's going to give you the power and the strength to overcome anything in life. And by the way, the war that, that was promised to Nehemiah, did it ever happen? Have you, have you read Nehemiah? That war that was promised, Sambal and Tobiah promised they were going to bring war upon Nehemiah. I've read the book a couple times. It never happened. The war never took place. It was promised, it was threatened, but God never allowed it. Because Nehemiah was doing a work for God. Let the devil talk and threaten all he wants, but it's not up to him. He doesn't get to, to, to choose what to do. He has to get God's permission to do anything. So we need not to be scared of the devil. Instead, we should fear the Lord. Fear God. When God gives us a project, something to do, he should be the one that we say, yes, Lord, I will do it. Because he is the ultimate giver and taker of, of, of all the things that could take place in our life. Let's not be fearful of the devil, but instead, let's be fearful of God. So the devil, he threatened Nehemiah with his incompetence. He threatened him now with war. Ooh, here's a big one, though. Some people could overcome some, you know, some mental struggles of our own personal strengths. We may be able to overcome threats of war. Maybe we're, we're strong, we're tough enough for that. But this is one that gets a lot of people. Now he threatens Nehemiah with financial oppression. Financial oppression. See, it's one thing to attack me, but when you start attacking something that, uh, that affects my family now, this is where things get tough. Look in chapter 5 and verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1. So the work is progressing. Things are, things are going pretty good. Now another opposition. Verse 5. Chapter 5. Verse 1. And there was a great cry of the people and of the wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money from the king's tributes and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage. And it goes on and it goes on. What's happening here? The people are getting discouraged because they're running out of food. They're running out of money. They've actually come to the point where the Jews, excuse me, the Jews are actually 
are actually oppressing their fellow Jews. Jews now are having, they mortgage their lands to fellow Jews in exchange for money. It's not like the enemy has come in and has taken away their money. It's their own people. This is an, an internal problem. And it's come down all the way down to their wealth. Many of them own nothing now. They're hungry. They don't even know why they're building this wall because they have no homes or anything to live in afterwards. They were discouraged. And this is a classic move the devil makes. He knows that many people can't help but love money, love their money. He knows if he can scare you with anything, it just might be money. Society has created a desire within us to have money. They've told us success means money. To be successful means you have to have possessions. You weren't successful until you have a home, until you have a certain car by a certain year or from a certain brand. You're not successful unless you wear certain clothes and you drink certain drinks and you do certain activities and you go certain places. That is success. People who live on the outside, they look in and say, oh, I just, man, I see that family, they're always doing this and they have this, or this family has this and that. And Man, if, oh, they're so, they must be so happy. They must be so successful. And the devil gets us thinking, that is what true happiness is. That is where true success comes from. But is that true? And we know in our hearts, yeah, I know money's not true success, but somewhere within us, it's still there. It still, it still eats at us. Can success only be obtained by having a good income or even a, a decent income? Many of us will say the answer is no but with our mouth, but our heart is telling us something otherwise. Many Christian parents today won't let their kids serve the Lord because there's no money in it. There's no future in that. Many parents will oftentimes smother the calling of God's, uh, uh, of the calling of God's, uh, in the life of their children, they'll smother the, that calling because it's just, it's, it's not going to work out. It's not going to benefit your future. The devil knows how powerful money and success is to us. So he will use that threat to stop us from serving him. The devil plays dirty. There's no rules with him. He'll say anything he can. He'll do anything he can. He'll kick you when you're down. He'll, when you're turned around, he'll stab you in the back. He doesn't care about you. He'll do anything he can to get us from serving God, to prevent us from serving God. And the last real threat he gives to Nehemiah here is a scandal, a scandalous threat to Nehemiah. Look over in chapter 6 now in verse 1. Nehemiah is still going strong. The devil is throwing everything he can at him. He's trying to uh, go to his competence. He's trying to threaten war. He threatens him with financial problems. He's got one more up his sleeve now. Now he's going to try to create a scandal against Nehemiah. Scandals run rampant today. People love the, oh, a good scandal. They love a, a good gossip here and there. The devil knows this, so he's going to try to, to hurt Nehemiah through this scandal. Look in verse, chapter 6 now in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. So it's almost done now. Verse 2. 
that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. Okay, so there they sent a messenger and said, Nehemiah, why don't you come off the wall and meet with us in the land of Ono? But Nehemiah knew, there's no, I, I can't stop now. I'm almost done. I don't know what these guys got up their sleeve. I ain't leaving this wall. Verse 3, and I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Verse 4, yet they sent unto me four times after this sort. And I answered them the same, after the same manner. Four times more, they sent the same message. And four times back, Nehemiah says, I ain't coming off this wall. Just stop it. So what they do in verse 5. Then sent Sanballat, his servant, unto me, in like manner the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel. For which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words, and that thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king. According to these, according to the king, according to these words, come now therefore, and let us take counsel together. What are they doing now? They're trying to start a lie. They're trying to say, everybody listen. Nehemiah is pushing for this wall to be built because he wants to reign over you. He wants to be your king. He's already assembling prophets to come in to prophesy of him. He's trying to build himself up so he can rule over you. It's just a gimmick, everybody. Stop falling for this Nehemiah guy. He's just using you for his own advantage, for his own gain. And five times more, Nehemiah said, I don't have time for this. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own hearts. Nehemiah wasn't about to have this. He stayed on that wall and he kept building. And nothing hurts worse than a threat on your morality. When you're trying to serve God, and yet now your morality is in question. Even if you've done nothing wrong, the devil will play any trick he can to stop you. And you know the people that get criticized and slammed the most are oftentimes the people doing the greatest work for God. The people who are actually trying their best to serve God. Now, there are many people who have served God and fallen, al fallen along the wayside. We know that's happened before. It's happened recently. And it's happened many times before and it's going to continue to happen but oftentimes when people are trying to do their best to serve god that's when these scandals like to sneak in we know for instance paul was beaten and stoned and imprisoned multiple times for things he didn't do peter was imprisoned and persecuted on multiple occasions jesus was constantly being ridiculed challenged accused of blasphemy numerous times and of course eventually went to the cross Moses was blamed for everything, even accused by his own siblings for being prideful and arrogant at one point. Elijah was hated and hunted by Queen Jezebel. Martin Luther was cast out of the Catholic Church, ridiculed by most of his friends and family. George Whitfield and Billy Sunday, they were criticized for their style of preaching. 
And even great men of God today are constantly getting battered and beaten emotionally from the devil. If you take a stand for God, you will get tested. You will. But the Bible says, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Not to say that if you faint sometimes, sometimes you do get weary. That doesn't mean that you don't have what it takes. In fact, that's you in a good position. If you find yourself in a position where you're weary, you're worn out, and you're tired, that's exactly where you should be. Say, huh? Because now, who are you going to go to for help? You see, when we are feeling good about ourselves and everything's going our way, it's easy for us to think, oh, I'm doing pretty good. Your life's going pretty good. I like the way my life is going. I feel like I could accomplish anything. But instead, God would rather us be in a place where we're down here going, Ah, God, can you help me, please? Lord, can you, carry, can you hold my hands? Like the song the choir sang this morning, Jesus, hold my hand. That's the position we need to be in. Nehemiah cries out to God. We've seen the dream of Nehemiah. We've seen the scheme. We've seen the scheme against Nehemiah. But lastly, the team of Nehemiah. See, all these things were towards Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he was just a guy. But Nehemiah couldn't do what he did without the team that he had. You see, the secret of Nehemiah's success is he had the Lord on his side. And he wasn't alone. He had a team. He didn't have just a team. He had an army. And I'd like us to remember today that we're not in this fight alone. Sometimes we think the struggle I'm going through is one of a kind. No one's ever been through it before. And, and you might be close. But there are other people around you who are struggling, that are going through things. Here in this room today, we, each of us have a battle that we're going through. Maybe some of us have multiple things that we're going through. Some may be way worse than the person next to you. We don't know. But no matter what it is, we always have a God that's with us. And here at Grace Baptist Church, we're a team. Now, we're not going to read chapter 3, but just look at it real quick. Just look at chapter 3. Maybe you have a Bible that has, um, you know, it has like, not page numbers, but it has little subject bars, like an outline. And it might explain to you what's going on. In chapter 3, my Bible says here, the builders of the wall. And if you want to read... Who was there with Nehemiah? Just read chapter 3. In this chapter, you find that there was at least 37 different working parties involved. And Nehemiah broke each of them up into specific categories. 37 uh, parties, each of them having multiple amounts of people working simultaneously with materials ready at hand against all of the adversary of the devil that he was giving them. There was a whole lot of people doing very specific things throughout their time. Nehemiah wasn't alone. He built this wall in 52 days with an army. But this is the reason Nehemiah was truly successful. He had his faith in God. But look what his team's attitude was. Look in chapter 2 in verse 17. I know we're bouncing around here. But look in chapter 2 in verse 17. Man, this, these are the friends you need to have in life. Teenagers, these are the friends you need to wrap yourself around, you need to find in life. And young adults and adults, we, these, this is the team that we need right here. Second, uh, sorry, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. So Nehemiah just told the people his burden. 
And this was his people's response. Then said I unto them, verse 17, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. That's an, that's an inspiring speech right there. How did they respond in verse 18? Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that had spoken unto me. And they said, nah, we're good. Oh no, not this team. This team said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Yes. That's the team every leader wants. Hey guys, I got an impossible task for us. In fact, I'm quite crazy, to be honest. But as crazy as I sound, as it sounds to do what we're about to do, God is with us. And not just God with us, but the king himself is behind this. Guys, I know we're small. We don't have the army against the Amorites and whoever else is out there. But I tell you what, we can do this. Are you with me? And the response was yes. We're with you. A team that doesn't have their head in the game is not a team at all. A team, in order for us to actually make a difference for God, we must work as a team. We must have our heads in the game. We must be focused. You've watched sports before, and sometimes you might see a team, and you can just tell they're lethargic. They're tired today. They're not, they're not themselves today. They're not running. They're not playing defense like they normally would. They're, they're, they're off today. If a team is to be successful, they must all be focused. And it's sad, but this is true. Many churches today are run by only a few people. Even in our Vernon conference, uh, I was talking with a couple of the pastors, and they were amazed at how true this statistic is, that most of their churches, on average, are being run by 20% of its members. 20% of the membership is doing 80% of the work, so they say. I'm thankful that I, I feel like that's, that, that percentage is a little bit better here in our church. We have some great people doing some great things for God. But there's always room for improvement. And that's just an average statistic. But if we are going to serve God, we need all hands on deck. If we're going to reach this city for Christ, if you look over at this map, we've tried to highlight areas that we've been able to soul in. And this has taken us years to get to this point. Years. We could easily, we should, be, we should be back starting doing it all over again, but we still haven't even fully knocked every door in Surrey yet. We need more help. We need more hands on deck to get this thing accomplished for God. You know, bees, bees can show you something about teamwork. On a warm day, about half of the colony of bees will be inside the, the beehive. And they're not in there resting. But while half are in the hive, the other half are, are out going out and getting pollen, right? They're out, they're the worker bees. They're buzzing around trying to get the pollen and the nectar. But the other half, they're not in the beehive sleeping. They're, they're, they're holding on to the hive and inside they're flapping their wings as fast as they can. If you were to go up and close to a beehive, you could hear the buzzing of the wings. What are they doing in there? They're all working together to keep the temperature inside cool. When, it, the warm, when the weather's hot outside, they need to keep the temperature down 
so that the queen bee can keep doing its thing or so that the honey can stay cool. The bees are constantly around the clock working. When the bees are out done coming in, you'll notice some bees will fly in and then some bees will fly out. They're taking turns. They're taking turns flying while the other ones are going in and getting out. You've probably heard this story before too, this illustration. Geese, they fly south, right, in the winter. They, they go to warm air. If ever you see geese, how they, they're up in the air and how they fly, many of them fly in a V-shape formation. V-shape. And maybe you've seen this in the sky or not. They have these very specific patterns they fly in, and it's always very interesting. And people have done immense studies on this and why they do that and what, how do they know to do this. And it's interesting, these geese will fly thousands of miles to get to their destination. It's one thing to drive thousands of miles, but to fly, that's a lot of work. I mean, I wouldn't know. I've never flown before, but I'm assuming it's a lot of work. But to be able to accomplish this, it's fascinating the science behind it. In front, you have the, the geese up front are the ones that are the most rested and oftentimes the strongest. They're the ones flapping their wings. You have the front, and then you've got the wings that make this V formation on the side. And as they progress through, this front beast, goose, this front flyer, he's going to get tired. So what do they do? He falls out of formation, he flies to the back, and then the next geese will move forward and take place. What's happening now is the geese up front as they fly and the longer they get, the more updraft they bring to the wind and the, uh, the geese behind them aren't feeling the, the hit from the wind quite as strong. And in fact, the more that they fly, this upward air current actually allows the ones in the back to not have to work as hard. They could, yes, they're still flying, but they're not flapping nearly as hard and it actually allows them to gain some strength. And they switch back and forth and they switch and they know how to do it. And apparently... The geese that end up in the back, they're honking their horns. They're honk, or whatever noise the geese make, right? They're always up in the sky, and you can hear them before you even see them, right? Where's the, oh, there's the geese right there. I, I can hear them honking away. And when they get to the back, they're honking, letting the, the leaders up front know, I'm back here, we're safe, everything's good. That's what they're doing. It's this formation that takes place around the clock and it allows them to get from point A to point B oftentimes without even stopping. I don't know about you, but the geese up front, the goose up front, the, the flyer up front, he can't make it there by himself. It would take way longer. But when you got a team behind you to make things happen, it's amazing what we can get accomplished for Christ. And we know their success. We know what happens. Brother Howard read it at the beginning. Chapter 6, verse 15. What's the conclusion here? Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month, Elul, in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass that when all the enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much happy. It's not even proper grammar. (laughs) They were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived ooh, read this last part with me, that this work was wrought of our God. They worked so well as a team that the enemy couldn't help but recognize God was behind them. 
God did this. That's what our goal is here at Grace Baptist Church. It's for, uh, for the world outside to look in and say, wow, I don't know what's happening in there, but it's probably not them. God must be doing something in this church. And that can never happen if there's only one person running the show. That can only happen if we work as a team. Wilt Chamberlain, Nehemiah, a bee, geese, goose, they all need a team. And we need one too. If you see someone falling, catch them before they fall. If you see someone struggling, pray for them. Don't criticize them behind their back. If you see someone hurting, comfort them. If someone's car sounds interesting, offer to take a look. If your team is going soul winning, go with them. If there is a gap in the nursery, offer to fill it. If we're short on ushers, which we are, by the way, fill it. A volunteer. If the church looks messy, which often it is, let's clean it. If the walls look scruffy, let's offer to paint them. If the carpets look old, let's donate some money. If kids need a ride, let's pick them up. We're all in this together. Let's team up and make a difference for God. Stand with me now as we close and pray. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.